The Paranet Podcast, a Dresden Files book club. You're alone on a deserted street in Chicago. Two men in trench coats approach you. One of them steps into the light and says, Welcome to the Paranet Podcast with your hosts, me, Patrick Lunn, and me, Rob Davis. I just thought I'd try something a bit different there, get some of the, the kind of Dresden Files vibes going. I liked it. I mean, I was a bit worried for a moment that you were just going to do what you did, I think, at Christmas and just kind of leave a moment for me to chime in with something and I'd have to like think on my feet, which would have been disastrous. But uh, I, I liked it. Uh, so today we have uh, another brilliant show for you guys Um, we're going to be talking about uh, Summer Night uh, Part 5 and we are really we're we're really getting into it now we're about halfway through the book uh, which is superb Uh, then uh, uh, God Uh, but before that uh, we will be doing our para-networking section uh, where we talk about stuff going on in the world of Dresden Files. This week, our topic is what age are the Dresden Files suitable for? Uh, which I think is an interesting topic. Cause it's one that I've seen a lot of people ask online. I haven't seen many good answers. Um, lots of kind of general answers. So we'll kind of dig into that. Um, as well as that, uh, I think uh, it's time for another check-in on uh, what we've been reading outside of Dresden Files. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks and uh, we, we try and keep you guys updated because me and Rob uh, are both, uh, I guess, literary addicts, uh, really. Uh, litterholics, maybe? Go with litterholics, sure. I, I like it. Yeah, I'm Patrick and I'm a litterholic. I like that. Uh, it does sound like I just like running to the middle of a city and just dropping loads of trash out of my pockets. Um, yeah, that too. Which I mean, <laughs> I, I feel that happens by accident. I used to have loads of like train tickets in my pocket, and you know when you like your keys are at the bottom, you reach for your keys, keys come out of the pocket, and then all the train tickets come out too. And and then you, you pick a few of them up, but some of them blow away in the wind, and you're kind of like, no one saw this, so. <laughs> I and, I mean and it's cold. Yeah, I uh I completely get get where you're coming from. Um it's yeah, it, it's a weird one. You you there, you there on a on a park bench with your your keys, your phone, your copy of Stormfront. And then you got a bunch of lint in your pocket. One of them's got to go and you know it's going to be the lint. So <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just trying to keep us on brand. Um, yeah, of course, I'm always out with my copy of Dresden Files. All 17 books, they're with me wherever I go <laughs> in audio format. I just approach people on the street and say, uh, Have you heard the good news? and then present a copy of Stormfront. <laughs> you should do that one day just to see what happens. <laughs> Um, yeah, yes. Uh, so, Rob, what have you been reading recently? Um, it's quite funny that you ask, because the answer is a lot. But, um, I finished the second book in The Wheel of Time on Friday, I think it was. 
Um, mm. And I, you probably remember I started it back in Christ. I think it was just before Peace Talks came out. I got really arrogant right. and was like, I can read this 900-page book in the next three days. And I, I do remember you saying that. I remember yeah. being skeptical then. To be fair, I got like halfway through it, and then I was like, you know what? Fuck this! I'm gonna shit. I said I wasn't gonna swear this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was my personal goal ruined. But um, I, I said when Peace Talks came out, like, yeah, I'm not gonna finish Wheel of, Wheel of Time. I need to read Dresden now. And then after Peace Talks, I don't know what I read instead because I didn't go back to Wheel to Wheel of Time up until what a week ago. Mm. So I mean I finally finished it and I've I've plucked book three off my shelf, ready for a good reading. But I've also realised that second semester of um, uni kicks off in like two weeks. So I went to check my reading list for that and none of it's been uploaded yet. So that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, roll on with book two, book three. Sorry. Yeah, just kind um... of. Read just read anything that kind of anticipation that the reading list will update itself, hopefully before the start of February. Yeah, that's fair enough. Classic um, uni shenanigans. <laughs> uh, so, you? How, how you find how you find the wheel of time? Oh, it is, it is good. I mean, I think my complaint with it with book two it's called the the Great Hunt. If anyone cares or hasn't read it. Um, hmm. it's it's a step up from the first book, but I think it also has a few of the same problems as the first book, being that like the first third and the final third of the book are really, 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 really good, and the middle was just kind of a bit of a slog. Yeah, and it's like it, it just gets to a point where the characters are like shit. Wasn't going to swear. Um, damn it, we need to go over there to the other side of the country to find this item. And everyone gets in a bit of a huff about it. And then you have about 30 chapters of them walking to this place very slowly. And, you know, someone, someone like trips over a bush or whatever and they have to stop and deal with that. It, it's, it just becomes a bit of a slog, but don't let that put you off. <laughs> it, it ends up being worth it. The last four chapters of that book were mm, chef's kiss. Mwah. I I have heard from other people reading the Wheel of Time that several of the books kind of have the issue of the start being really good, the end being really good, and the middle being a bit saggy. Um, yeah, I mean, but a lot of what I've heard of the series anyway is they get better with each book up until like book eight or something like that where it goes a bit weird for like two or three books and then it picks up again for the end but um my friend slash colleague at university who who's currently reading the fifth dresden files book he like powered through the entirety of wheel of time i think like over the summer that's the implication i got anyway it might have been longer than that but um he was saying that like the third book onwards is where it really kind of finds its feet, which I, I hope I, God is I true. Feel like long, long form fantasy series 
in a, in a most cases does take a little while to find its direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we've said the same about the Dresden Files, um, so I can I can understand that. Um, That's true, but I mean, I guess the difference between them, like a massive difference between them, is the first two Dresden books are probably the same length as the first Wheel of Time book. <laughs> okay. So like combined. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a when, commitment. When when each book is like I think the minimum of seven hundred and something pages. Like yeah. that that slog in the middle is quite yeah, a, a slog is too nice of a word. It's a bit of a chore. But Have you been reading um, much else? Um I feel like I was. Um Shit, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> nope, it's gone. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> Wheel of Time has pushed everything else out, and, and I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, what about yourself? Are you reading anything uh, interesting at the moment? Uh, so I've got, a, I've got a couple of things on the go. So my, my main thing at the moment is that um, so since we started the podcast, I've been on. I was on a massive, massive Warhammer kick. Um, I've now moved a little bit away from Warhammer. I've taken a bit of a break because the Horus Heresy was starting to break me. Um, <laughs> being on book sixteen and it's still being like things are just starting to kick off in a lot of cases <laughs> um, is a is a bit mental, um, but. It's I, it, it's really good. I'm still uh, I'm on the first heretic, which is the background of kind of the main inciting villain of the Horus Heresy. Yeah. Um, the fact that that's book sixteen gives you an idea of uh, <laughs> how Blimey. insane it is. Um, but I am determined to to finish it because it's it's an incredible like literary um, ambition of a series. Um, so yeah, uh, I've, I've been really, really doubling down on Star Wars, and I'm not really sure what started it. Uh, there's a couple of different things that happened all, all around the same time. The the end of The Mandalorian super hyped me up. Yeah, um, I'm feeling that as well. I Over Christmas, I rewatched both the prequels and the original trilogy with my partner, Amy, um, which was great and i and, and i hadn't watched them for a couple of years and there were little bits i'd forgotten so that was really nice um and our, our regular D group are kind of talking about future campaigns and things and we've all kind of discussed that we like the idea of doing a star wars campaign uh, and so so that was kind of part of it um and uh, I've just because uh, you've started watching the Clone Wars TV series, or, or have kept going watching the Clone Wars TV series, I've started rewatching bits um, and forgotten how how good it is. I, I watched the the season finale of season five this morning, and mm. oh, it is uh, some of like it is up there for me with some of the best movie moments in Star Wars. Some of what happens there. Um, so absolutely incredible. So a lot of reading that I've been doing recently has been the fantasy flight Star Wars games, Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, Force and Destiny, which I believe are going out of print, which is driving me insane. 
I'm getting that impression because when when we first started talking about doing a Star Wars campaign, I was looking at them and they they were all pretty reasonably priced. And no word of a lie, in the last week and a half, I think Edge of Edge of the Empire alone has gone up from like you know, twenty five to thirty pound to being like I think the highest I've seen it is about seventy five. Yeah, and I'm like, um, Nate, give it a rest, you know. <laughs> There's a, so you were asking for the uh, the ISBN number of, of Edge of the Empire, and I, yeah. I, I, part of getting that for you, I found that there's a, a website that tracks the price on Amazon of different ISBN numbers. So like you put an ISBN number in, and it shows you like the history of uh, prices and like um, so like for a normal book, it might fluctuate between like three pounds and twenty pounds, say. Um, yeah. Edge of the Empire was like massive peaks and troughs between fifteen pounds and eight hundred. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> like if if when I was looking before Christmas, I was like, oh, you know, if if I got some Christmas money and like spare disposable income or whatever, then I'll snag a couple of these books because it would cost me like fifty pound for two or three of them. Whereas now yeah. it would cost me like minimum 50 pound for any of them it's it is crazy there's there's a couple of of good places to look uh zatu games um are quite good because they do it they do deals where if you buy so many you get a discount yeah, um, i think um they do a lot i can't remember if it's them or somewhere else but i'm sure they do a like a loyalty scheme as well so like each yeah do you earn points on it which gives you x amount off on Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, I hear they also have an affiliate, uh, an affiliate service. So maybe we should get on that. Uh, shout mean, out I, to Zatu Games. All, all of the uh, Dresden Files RPG stuff that I have, or you know, the one book I got for you a couple of years ago, I all got that from Zatu. So may as well. Yeah, um, this that's something that we can talk about after the show, definitely. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. shout out to Zatu Games. Uh, <laughs> Um, don't buy from them quite yet. Wait until we have an affiliate link and then buy from them. <laughs> Way to go! Uh, awesome. Um, but uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I've been reading a lot of that. Um, I, I've done my normal like uh, hat thing and and just kind of focused uh, my buying around that quite a bit. So I've got a lot of those stacking up. Um. Alongside that, uh, I there's been some really good deals on Audible recently. Mm. Uh, I grabbed um, David Mitchell's uh, "Thinking About It Only Makes It Worse" um, <laughs> and Richard Iowadi's "Iowadi on Iowadi," um, both of which I've started. Um, I haven't finished either, um, but they're they're both quite good in in kind of an episodic way. Um, yeah, I. Uh... I was reading, um, I say reading, listening to uh, David Mitchell's, I think it's called Dishonesty as the Best Policy. Yeah. And yeah, same thing with that. In half hour chunks, it's really good. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, we've talked several times about our love of Peep Show. Um, yeah. And it's, it's another good way to fill that hole. Um, apart from that, uh finished uh minecraft the island um that's the that's one i was telling you about a couple of weeks back 
Max Brooks, who wrote uh, World War Z and the Zombie oh, yeah. Survival Guide, yeah, uh, wrote a Minecraft book, and then it was narrated by none other than Jack Black. Nice. Um, I like the thing. I, I what I mm, there <laughs> there are things I like about this, um, and. I feel like it's been heavily, it was heavily restricted by being part of the Minecraft universe, I guess. Like there's, there's a lot of things where it's just kind of, I mean, it's almost a written account of a Minecraft let's play. Yeah. Which is very strange. Um, What saves it for me is that it's a very well-written account and Jack Black doing the audio gives it everything. So between the two, um, it's it's more the way it's told, but the actual story I wouldn't particularly rate. Um, okay. At the same time, I also realise that I'm not the target audience. <laughs> um, so I think if if your kids are into uh, Minecraft, um, it's definitely a good one for them. Um. And that's that's probably the best recommendation I can give it. Um, I mean, it, it it's done very well for itself. It's sold well, and it's got lots and lots of accolades and stuff. And I think it even has, it does even have a sequel coming out called The Mountain. Um, so yeah, um, it's it certainly fills a niche, and I think that's, that's the best I can say about it. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, it's uh, it's fun. It's a fun ride, and it's only like a couple of hours, so that's fine. Uh, I think we. I think I already talked about. Did I talk about Ready Player Two? No, I think you mentioned you had it, or you were waiting to read it next, like a while back. But I don't know if you've actually read it yet. Um, I got a good. I got a good way into Ready Player Two, and um, I don't. I don't like doing this, and um, so I, I, I tend not to stop reading a book, but I will bench books for a while if I don't think I'm in the right mood for it or whatever. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I do that, and I I I benched Ready Player Two because, oh boy, uh, it's it's got problems. Um, I like. I, I, a lot of the criticism I have seen for Ready Player Two has been criticism that you could have given about Ready Player One, um, yeah. like it being referential and stuff. Uh, of course, it's going to be referential. That's what the whole series is about. I get that. Um, kind of just what the author does as well. I hear I hear the same thing with um, is it Armada? His other book. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and yeah, I, that's that's his style and and. To be honest, I was fully on board with it in Ready Player One, and um, I'm not going to criticize him for it here because it's it's what he does. So why why would you criticize him for that? Um, it's like saying, "Oh, I'm 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 up for this Tolkien book, but I hope there's not a, a bunch of elves and dwarves in it." Um, <laughs> just yeah, no. Um, but the my problem with it really is that there's a lot of it feels like. Hangover 2 or Ghostbusters 2 where it's it the plot just resets 
the character arcs reset. Um, it's the the main character is just his his personality just shifts. Mm. Um, and then there's these very strange asides of I think a lot of people enjoyed the 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 idea of the oasis and like kind of the the vision of the new technology and so there's a lot of talk about the societal impact of the next innovation that comes out and there's a lot of talk about other innovations that are going on in the world of Ready Player Two but it's talked about for like a couple of paragraphs has no story connection. Um, and often it's like a very big concept. Like one of them is about deep space travel. They've talked about deep space travel. And now that they've got the, the, the Oasis deep space travelers could be plugged in and could communicate and wouldn't have to deal with any of the psychological effects of deep space travel. They could even live whole lives and die in the, in the Oasis uh, and travel deeper and deeper into space. Super cool idea has nothing to do with the main plot where I'm up to in the book, at least. Mm. Um, And just, they don't really dive into, okay, well, what does that mean? Or are they building something or are they doing something? It's just like, this is an idea. And uh, yeah, it just, it it rubbed me the wrong way. And um, I've seen other uh, reviewers with similar, similar feelings. Um, Daniel Green is obviously someone that we talk about quite a lot on the show. Um, And, uh, he had very similar problems with it, um, and I, I, th- I think obviously we gravitate towards him because we think we we think alike, um, and yeah, I, I I see the issues that he had too. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know. Um, some people who liked Ready Player One, um, it I mean it's it's got that Ghostbusters two Hangover two quality. If you like the first one, this is exactly more of the first one. Um, flaws and all, I guess. Yeah. Uh, if anything, just hyped up. Um, but yeah. Um, so that's that's everything I've been reading. <laughs> Fair enough. Um. Oh my god, we're like twenty minutes in, and we, we've just got through the what we've been <laughs> reading. Um. That's fine though, uh, because in our power networking section today, we have quite a short little power networking section. Um. So I was I was just having a bit of a troll um, around Reddit and around Google at what people what are what are the big questions people ask about the Dresden Files, um, and apart from the the really kind of easily solvable basic ones like um, is the Dresden Files good? How many books in the Dresden Files? Uh, is the Dresden Files finished? Stuff like that that you can find out quite quickly. Um, the the first kind of really subjective one, I guess, uh, or subjective to a degree, that I found was what age is the Dresden Files appropriate for? Um, and I think this is a really interesting question um, because it's uh, a story about a wizard, uh, a wizard named Harry, uh, and um, I can see some people looking at this. Um, <laughs> it's got a kind of grimy aesthetic that, like, it's got a, it, it has a bit of a YA aesthetic in that 
Um, it's kind of, it looks very, very 90s, hyper gritty. Um, yeah. the, the covers particularly. Um, so I can, I can, and I can see people thinking, oh, okay, so you kind of, uh, so maybe it's like Harry Potter for the more edgy teen or something like that. Um, what are your thoughts, Rob, when it comes to Dresden Files and Age? Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting question, not just for Dresden Files, but just for books in general, because something that I found, I mean, I've, I've always found it interesting anyway as a kid and stuff, because there's no real age rating or anything for books like they are with films, video games, or even like, you know, some uh, like CDs and stuff will have like parental guidance on them. Um, I've always found it interesting that you don't have that with books. I mean, occasionally it'll have like a little label on the back saying it's aimed at like teens or it's romance or something. But I mean, I mean, a classic example here is we had um, when I was at Waterstones when I was working there over I think it was last Christmas actually. A woman was buying. Uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, but it's uh, like the second and third book. And yeah. she comes up and she's like, oh, are there, are there any more in this series? I don't know much about them, but my 12-year-old son read the first one and loved it. And I was like, your 12-year-old son should not be reading this? Like, it's <laughs> some seriously graphic like scenes in it that even... I found difficult reading because I, I think I read it when we were an undergrad, like at the start of first year. Fuck knows why, because yeah. um, it wasn't totally my thing. And there were just scene, scenes in it that were just so hard to read because of how violent or gruesome, I guess you could say it was. But I know it's, it's, I just, I mean, that's an interesting subject. We should probably say for another day. But um, in terms of what age group would I say Dresden Files would be aimed at? It's a tricky one because I don't want to say like YA young adult because I don't think that is the case. Mm. But marketing it, I would probably pin it more towards you know like mid to late teens onward. Like I think I, yeah. I think if I picked this up and I was like fifteen years old, I would have loved it and. Looking at what I read when I was fifteen, it was like fantasy stuff, like David Gemmell, uh, Brandon Sanderson, stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd say it's suitable. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're reading at that age as well. I think I think the thing is is that it there there's a there's a larger argument about how uh, how much impact literary media has versus other media because uh, it's obviously not a visual. Um, it's not it's not a visual art. It's it's very like self. Uh, you, it's about self visualization. It's almost. I mean, I've, I've, I I think you can you can almost uh, equate it to like a guided meditation or something in some ways. Yeah, uh, you are visualizing what the author kind of lays out in front of you. Um. Uh, and I, and I see a lot of this arguments around horror, like um. Horror, like. I, I have had the conversation before that books cannot be scary. Um, 
at someone saying someone saying that to me, and 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 I completely refute that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I like there is a big difference between giving a uh, an eleven year old child um, goosebumps hmm. and giving them pet cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting you say it because something that surprised me a lot, and I can't recall who it was. Quite a few people to my mind, like when I got into Stephen King about ten years ago, and mm. you know, people would be like, "Oh, I'd be like, oh, I've, I've been really getting into Stephen King lately," and like half the people I knew were like, "Oh yeah, I read it when I was like eight because it was on my my parents' shelf," and I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I just found it so bizarre because, I mean. And the thing is that there is there's stuff in there that is more of a a kid's aesthetic. When you think of like killer clowns and things like that, there is something like like ten year olds going to like a, a haunted um, house ride or something. There'd mm. be like killer clowns and things like that. But the, the, there's kind of two levels to this because there's the one level of like. Yes, uh, there are some bits of of it, for instance, that are just hor- straight out horrifying, um, and and talk about things that are, are really horrifying, especially some of the stuff with Beverly um, is is uh, is like a sexual aspect to it and all and all this sort of stuff. Um, but um, there's also aspects to it that aren't horrifying until you have the maturity to understand why they're horrifying. Yeah. Um, so where where I was going with Pet Cemetery, um, Pet Cemetery really has less horror in it than your average Goosebumps book in a lot of ways. Um, it, I mean, there's a there's a bit of like necromancy. There's a bit of like uh, something's not right kind of aspect to it, but a lot of it is is very kind of normal suburban life. Yeah, um, you know, I I guess with horror being written, it's not going to be. I, know, I I mean, a good example here is the film The Exorcist and the book, where the book is more atmosphere building as opposed to straight up possessed girl proclaiming. I mean, it's never going to have a jump scare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair point. Um. It's a it different kind of scare, isn't it? Yeah, this this is the thing, is that like so where I'm going with the pet cemetery thing is like what makes pet cemetery for me the most scary is that um Pet Cemetery is about I mean, yes, it's about necromancy, but it's also about uh the selfishness. It's it's not selfishness, really. It's it's the it's the, the well yeah okay it's the selfishness of grief, I suppose, um, and the lengths that that someone would go to to get rid of their grief if they could with supernatural kind of powers and stuff, and and it's very understandable horror, it's very um, the horror is in the humanity not in the monsters yeah and I. And I don't think that like a ten-year-old is going to necessarily get that, but a twenty-year-old might, and a thirty-year-old definitely will. 
Absolutely. Um. So there's there there is a there's a whole discussion about. In some ways, yeah, you could give pet cemetery to a ten year old because I don't think it's going to horrify them. <laughs> um. They're just going to go. Oh, okay, it's it's a story about a creepy kid that comes back to life. Um. But there's there's more layers to it, I guess. Um, so bringing this back around to Dresden anyway. Yeah. There are a lot of things that the Dresden Files alludes to. Um, there's a lot of, of stuff about addiction. There's um, talk about sexual abuse. There's stuff about um, uh, dysfunctional relationships, psychological damage, uh, toxic masculinity. Lots of these topics that, again, I don't think a younger person is going to pick up on. That being said, there are more overt topics of drug usage, even in the first book, um, and uh, not wildly graphic, but still graphic enough sex and violence. Um, If you come to the first book, there is a murder scene where two people were killed during sex and their hearts shot out of their bodies, for goodness sake. Uh, um, with that in mind my my kind of thoughts on it is that I would put this at like a 15 if it was a film so I think I'd probably say about the same so I think maybe 15 and up um, if I yeah. personally had, had children who were interested in magic realism I would probably start them with Harry Potter uh, when they start high school so that's uh what 11 you follow harry potter all the way through till his seventh year so you follow a book a year um and and it kind of matures with the reader there so that that gets them up to about 18 19 and then i would go with dresden straight on from there if they if they were still interested i'd suggest dresden and i think that picks up quite well um and they're at the kind of right maturity and stuff uh there um, but if if they weren't bothered about Harry Potter or whatever, or they wanted something else to read alongside, then you could probably start them when they're about 15, 16. Yeah, I mean, it depends what else they're reading at that time, if anything. Yeah, I, I think that's... There's so that, much more to factor in, isn't there? Definitely. Um, I, like, I, I think I was quite sheltered um, <laughs> when it came to, like, reading and stuff. Um I like my my comic books had all the swears blanked out. Um, most things that I I mean I remember the first time I got a grab bag of comic books and it had I think it was Red Sonia or something like that, which is a Dynamite mm-hmm. comic. I don't know Dynamite mm-hmm. comics. They're basically comic books with all the sex and violence very much brought to the forefront. Um, and I remember giving that to my parents because I felt uncomfortable. And I was like oh. 15. Fair <laughs> enough. I was like, this just doesn't feel right. It feels kind of like dirty. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just remember there being a fight scene and in huge, like like Adam West Batman, like pow whap letters, there was just, fuck! Uh... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And I was just like, no, that doesn't that doesn't feel right for me. 
that say, that, uh, saying that now, like as I've as I've got older and matured, like there's, I, I, most of my comic books uh, go right the other way. I have read a lot of the the comic book series, The Boys and Preacher, um, two very graphic comic book series. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, and 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 same when it came to novels. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's kind of my my thoughts on it. Um, sorry, I feel like I steamrolled a bit there. I had a lot of that I wanted to say. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, cool, good stuff. So, uh, yeah, final final uh, verdict: fifteen, sixteen year olds, which I think was about what you were saying too, right? Yeah. Given some of the topics and stuff, whether they're understood or not, I feel that's probably a good bracket. I don't think it's one that gets worse with the books. Agreed. Um, in fact, if anything, I would say it gets a little bit cleaner and a little bit more... There's less shock factor, because I feel like it becomes more about the magic and um, the characters... Whereas the first couple of books were kind of, they fell into that that kind of Game of Thrones uh, chasm of being like, this isn't your granddad's fantasy, this is fantasy that fucks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is a slightly jealous re- reference as well. If, uh, but yeah, um, it, it's it's kind of like, yeah, it's this isn't your your mum and dad's Harry Potter. Um, we're going to have people having sex and exploding. I'm hooked so, already. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and in fairness, if you want to pitch the Dresden Files to someone like that, you you will quite possibly get them to at least read Stormfront with that pitch. <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, let's move over to our uh, Dresden Files Book Club. So, uh, as we ex- uh, tell you guys every week, explain every week, um, the Dresden Files Book Club is our uh, attempt to run through all the comic books, games, role-playing games, uh, novels, short stories, novellas, um, graphic novels, anything else in between uh, in the Dresden Files in chronological order. Uh, we are currently at book four, Summer Night, um, and uh, every week we do uh, we recap the last four chapters, and then we talk about the next four chapters, and then we do a little like book club discussion, uh, and then when we finish a book, we read anything in between, or or play whatever games in between, or whatever, and, and we'll go over that as well. Um, so. Uh, I always do last time. Rob always does this time. Uh, so, last time on Summer Night! Um, it, we had some explosive chapters. Uh, so, uh, magic... Uh, Harry uh, created a magic circle uh, and hooked up with his uh, fairy buddies, Toot Toot, um, and uh, his uh, kind of hangers-on entourage. Um, 
Harry talked to Toot for a little while, learned that the Summer Queen was in Chicago in one of the big buildings. He then traded a large pizza uh, for Toot to guide him to Maeve, the Winter Lady. Uh, Toot explains that it will involve going to Undertown. The Winter Lady uh, set up in Undertown during Grave Peril. Um, Harry agrees to go along with his companion, Billy, uh, who is uh, able to turn himself into a werewolf. Uh, Toot sends one of his fairies, Elodie, to guide Harry and Billy into Undertown. That takes us to chapter 14. Harry explains Undertown to Billy, how it's part of Chicago that sank into the mud around Lake Michigan. It's where a lot of nasty supernatural beings hide. Billy and Harry are greeted by Grim Malkin, a vicious Malk who takes them to Maeve, the Winter Lady. We get an awesome depiction of the Winter Court and the mortals captured. There are fairies preparing for war with stylized WW2 World War II outfits. There is a dance going on and a group of musicians performing. One of the musicians dies performing the Trump solo of his life. Literally, in this case. Maeve introduces herself. Harry asks Maeve if she killed the Summer Night. She agrees to tell him if he will make a deal. Into chapter 15. Maeve suggests that she could take Harry's firstborn and produce a member of her court, Jenny Greenteeth, for Dresden to sleep with. Dresden and Billy are hit with a bunch of glamour, uh, which is designed to kind of befuddle their senses and get them all horny. Um, However, Harry takes a glass of ice water and pours it straight down his trousers. Maeve starts to rage at Dresden, but is cut off by the arrival of Lloyd Slate, the current winter knight, who presents Maeve with a blade covered in black goo. Maeve rages uh we can only assume about the goo and says that the blade is no use and starts to fight with slate granny uh, jenny Greenteeth intervenes and takes lloyd slate and drugs him to calm him down harry leaves with billy offending mave harry then explains to billy that mave wouldn't have been powerful enough to kill the summer night as she demonstrated some of her power uh trying to boss around lloyd slate and it just it isn't enough Harry and Billy then realise that they are in Undertown and don't know the way out. Luckily, Elodie turns up and guides them to the surface. Harry and Billy feel relieved and relaxed when they are jumped on the way to their cars. On to chapter 16. The group that jumped Harry reveal themselves to be changelings. Half Fay, who were friends with the Summer Knight, Ace, Fix, Merrill, and Lily. Lily has gone missing. Merrill offers Dresden three times his normal rate to find Lily. After some debate, Dresden takes the case. Dresden tells Billy he's going to go to Murphy to learn more about Lloyd Slate. After leaving Billy, Dresden finds Elaine beaten and close to death in his passenger passenger seat. And that's where we left that's where we finished last week. Rob, do you want to take it this week? Yeah, luckily uh with this already being quite a fat episode. There's, I, I struggled with notes for this chapters, these chapters. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's still plenty to talk about, so I'll just go into it. Um, chapter 17, we kick off you know, on, on the cliffhanger of uh, last week's episode with Elaine being in the Blue Beetle, bloody and beaten. Um, Harry checks over her wounds, and she's been like slashed and all, all kinds of, all just all kinds of stuff. Um, and Harry's immediately like, I'm taking you to hospital because <laughs> this is bad. And she's like semi-conscious, just like, oh, no, 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 they'll, they'll find me there. Um, 
And who will find her there? Well, you know, you'll have to read and find out. Um, <laughs> but she tells him to go to the Rothschild Hotel and take her to Aurora, who is the summer lady. Um, so they had that, and when they arrive, like they're, they're going through this hotel, it's all it's all normal as you expect. Um, elevator door opens, and this girl instantly recognizes who Elaine is, but also can tell that Harry is, you know, working for the Winter Court. So she's a bit hesitant, being like, "What what what have you done to her?" And he's like, "I haven't done anything. I'm here to help her." Um, mm. but she she helps you know, carry Elaine into the um, elevator and they're going up and all that kind of thing. And Harry is just flat like, I'm not leaving her until I know that she's safe. And the girl's like, oh, yeah, fair enough, then you're not as wintry as most winter people, is basically what it boiled down to. Um, the elevator door opens onto the roof and we get kind of, I know, like the opposite of what Undertown was. Like, it's... Just like this, I think it's described as being a tropical forest that could have been easily in like Borneo or somewhere like that. Um, yeah. And something that sticks out to Harry right away is a throne that's made of like. I feel like describing it being made of wood is like a really crap way of describing it. Um, oh, it's like branches, like tree branches it's made out of is probably a better way of going with it. And it's like a throne that's been naturally grown. Yeah, like, um, annoyingly, there's no image of this on the book cover, but I noticed while pausing the chapters earlier that the front cover for the audiobook has got that throne on it. I don't know if mm. you've noticed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just thought I'd throw that out there as well. Um, and you know, Harry, Harry's just kind of prowling around trying to find some help for his little pal. And we kind of get introduced to this gnarly guy called Korek, and he we get his attention because he is a half-man, half-horse, or better known as a centaur. He's also a blacksmith, which it doesn't really focus on too much, and he's a bit leery. He's like, a, a member of the Winter Court here? Why, this is an insult! And mm -hmm. he's, you know, he's out for blood, especially since, you know, Elaine's a bloody mess, and Harry's got like loads of her blood on him. So he naturally, the thinking here is that he's bloodied her up himself, which I think is a bit of a jump. I don't know why you would think he's beaten her to a pulp, then brought her back here and come this far into our territory just to kind of brag. Yeah. Um, but I mean, each third round, it must be some sort of winter trickery. Yeah, <laughs> but um, the, the whole situation is called down by, uh, I'm sorry if I pronounce this wrong, Talos, and it's revealed that that's he's, right. sorry? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And he is a she-lord of the Summer Court. I think, specifically, he was described as, I want to say, a marshal, something mm. something like that, something that sounded a bit law enforcement-y, but... Um, yeah, he calls down the situation and is just kind of chatting away to Dresden. And I like this conversation because that just how the Fate are—they're just so useless. <laughs> I mean, that's not not useless as such, but 
he's just constantly like, so you're going to help Elaine or not? And they're just like, oh, well, I suppose she is a bit of a mess. Yeah. And then they just continue and like, so you like, uh, you want some food or a drink or anything? Like, you know. And he, just Harry's like, shut up, save her or do your thing. Um, and then like, yeah, we get a few more details about um, uh, Lily as well. He starts talking to. He doesn't know that it's uh, Aurora at this point, but he starts talking to Aurora and. I really like this scene, and I, I don't even know why. I think it is just because of the extra detail about Lily and stuff like that. Um, Aurora mentions that, you know, despite being a changeling and that her she origin has come from winter, she is known and liked throughout the summer by court. And it just seems a bit weird that, oh, and occasionally she models for us, and there's just like all these like nude paintings and stuff of her, which. I mean, whatever, but it just seems really bizarre. Um, and I like the attention to detail here where it's kind of pointed out the difference here between, like the obvious difference between summer and winter of what we've seen of them so far. And Aurora mentions mm-hmm. that, you know, Harry Dresden doesn't seem like the kind of man Mav would usually employ. He's not. He's not cold, he's not cruel, he's not, you know, a murdering psychopath. Um, yeah. At this point, Harry's kind of like, "Oh my god, are you the summer lady?" And she's like, <laughs> ten points to you, ten points to Gryffindor." Um, <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> and they just kind of have more chinwag, I guess. But again, it's it's kind of the conversation he was having with Talos, where she keeps like throwing all this stuff at him, and he's like, "I mean, yeah." Whatever, fine. I'm part. I'm working for Mab. So what? Are you gonna save Elaine? And she just kind of again like looks over at her body and is just like, she'll be fine eventually. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Elaine's like, just twitching. <laughs> <laughs> she she's fine. There's not a scratch on her, and she's just bleeding out in a corner. Um, but I. Again, like Aurora follows this up with pointing out that you know, Harry has been not manipulated, like designed, built to be like cruel and to kill, and he's been trained this way by not only Demon but um, the Lianchi as well, his fairy mm. godmother. And he's like, she was hardly a mentor; like she just kind of showed up whenever she wanted to steal my soul or try to. And yeah. Aurora's like, well, you got off light because she is like the most vicious and cruel member of the Winter Court and possibly the most dangerous being you can encounter. And kind of deduces here that Harry, as a byproduct, is also as dangerous. Um, in any case, she like tries to warn him off of uh, Mab's case and, you know, touches him very briefly as a reward, not as a reward that's probably the wrong way of putting it like (laughs) he's like oh are you going to heal Elaine or not and he's like I don't think she's the one who needs healing and she kind of places a hand on his shoulder and or like chest or whatever it was and suddenly like all of the pain and emotion he's been feeling about you know the guilt over Susan and all that kind of stuff just kind of 
lets go, I suppose, just kind of fades away briefly. And she's like, you know, give up this task. Like, don't don't look into it any further, which in retrospect is actually quite shady when someone's telling you to not look into a case. Um, yeah. And he's like, no way, Jose. I got a job to do. Um, and yeah, she she agrees to help Elaine. I should probably throw that out there as well. Um, before Harry leaves, Aurora informs him that you know, with the loss of the summer night, some are preparing to go to war, and the plan is at midsummer when the summer court is at its height of strength. Their plan is to then go to war then because it's the only chance they'll have a winning without. You know, the winter night being there. Not winter night, summer night, sorry. Mm-hmm. And Harry's like, well, shit, it's all gone tits up. Which, understandable, I suppose. And we roll yeah. to chapter 18. Harry kind of marches out to the nearest payphone, and he calls up Murphy. And <clears throat> she's like, oh, what gives, you know? And he's like, uh, we, need to, we need to meet up, like, somewhere in a public place, because less danger um and they meet up at like some walmart store which is a shopping center to the best of my knowledge um it's like um a walmart's like uh in our in our country we have like asda's and tesco's supermarket yeah that's what i would have gone with but wasn't too sure um harry opens up to and i quite like this entire chapter actually so there'll be a discussion point on this but um, they, Harry opens up to her about everything, like how he's trying to solve this case and he's getting like resistance from like all of his allies, all the people who are meant to be his allies. Obviously, like enemies are resisting as well and how the White Council have basically thrown him under a bus with this impossible task. And mm-hmm. if he fails in the task, he dies. And, you know, he'll either get killed doing the task, which I think is their hope and expectation. But if he fails the task and lives, then they're just going to fucking throw him to the vampires. Um, And Murphy, you know, in reaction to this, just says what everyone's thinking. Like, why are the White Council a bunch of, you know, dickheads, basically? Um, (laughs) And she tries to help him make sense of things. And I think this is the scene that I feel I've been waiting for since we've been doing this podcast, which is where Harry really opens up to her on like I went through a li- like a mental list of people I can trust and that list is just you and yeah. like you know you you've been important to all of like these cases and stuff and the reason why I've kept you at arm's length was to keep you safe but now I need I seriously need your help so either way you'll have to get involved with this but you can't bring in like special investigations because they'll just get fucked um yeah <clears throat> and at this point, you know, the store lights go out all at once, and the emergency lights turn on, and all this light, mist and fog is entering the store, which can mean only one thing. Trouble. Mm-hmm. Chapter 19. A civilian walks through this fog and becomes really all, like, docile and shit, just kind of, I don't know, walking dead-like without being a zombie, I suppose. Just... Yeah. dribbling um, and Harry mentions you know, oh, the, the fog messes with memory it, it's there to you know, stop you in your tracks so him and Murph try to outrun the fog and 
everything like that. And she pulls out a fire, um, she pulls the fire alarm, hope that it kind of helps all the other like customers and staff, which it doesn't because most of them are already affected by the fog. Um, at this point, you know, something's going to go down. So they get ready for a fight and Murphy draws her gun. And to kind of get a bit of breathing space here, like Harry puts them in a magic circle to protect them from the mist while they kind of figure this out. Um, at this point, he thinks that you know, the best course of action here is to put like an enchantment on both Murphy and himself, which will stop the fog from you know messing around with their heads and all that kind of stuff. And as he's doing like preparing this enchantment, Murphy's just kind of stood there like mouth open because she's never she's worked for Dresden for like years at this point, mm. and she's never seen him really do magic. So it's a bit of a, like, well, he was telling the truth kind of moment, I suppose. Um, it was always yeah, kind of, it was always like the subtle kind of Gandalf sort of magic. Yeah. Uh, I guess to a, to a degree. I mean, there was a bit of when he was dealing with the Luke Garou, but even then it was all like circles and, um, yeah, it was very like, kind of like how... Uh, magic practitioners in in our world do magic or what they they term to be magic yeah um it kind of it 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 had a very provable like it worked um whereas it it doesn't always in in our world obviously um whereas yeah this time he's really like bringing power to bear yeah it's it's pretty cool um it is yeah, the, so this enchantment's been put in place, and they break the circle and let the fog just kind of flow over them. And what I like before the Harry breaks the circle is like Murph's just like, "Oh, is it, so we're safe now?" And he's just like, "I don't know. Let's find out," which doesn't instill confidence in him. Um, but yeah, it turns out the enchantment does hold up against this. So woohoo, they're all right for the moment, and they start again traveling through this fog trying to get out of the store. And at this point, they are jumped by Tigress, who is the ghoul that attempted to assassinate uh, Harry at the very start in the first chapter. And, you know, like, Murphy, like, pulls out a... Oh, she's already pulled out a gun. Like, turns the gun on her and is like, you know, freeze, you're under arrest. And Tigress just goes into ghoul mode and is just taunting her, being like, (laughs) you silly mortal. And Murph starts to panic, because she's getting, like, all this kind of... PTSD kind of shit from uh, the incident with the nightmare from the previous book, Grave Peril. Mm-hmm. And the ghoul is just continuing to mock her, which thank, you know, it's what I like about Murphy. This, this thing's just taunting her and she just gets so fed up of it and just decides to shoot anyway. And she's just emptying this clip into this like ghoul and it, it's perfect. Um, and Harry is just, you know, he he starts like paying attention at this point, just in time to realise that Tigress is not alone. And who else should be there but our old pal Grum, the ogre. And mm. he, he rocks up just throwing like flower pots and shit and swinging a shovel, um, as you do. And Harry at this point knows that his magic is going to be pretty useless. So he starts using the environment to his advantage and kind of gets Grum's attention and lures him away from Murphy and the rest of the fight. Um, Murphy, like, brings it to Harry's attention as well, that someone else is involved 
and they're covering the exits because whenever they make for the exit routes, someone starts shooting them with a rifle like to keep them in the building. So this wasn't coincidental, it was planned. Um, and just when Harry thinks, oh, you know, I'm making some progress here, a 10-foot-tall plant monster decides to just pop up and starts, mm-hmm. like, swinging him around. And, I mean, he dubs it this in Chapter 20, but he dubs it the Chlorophyne, which yeah. I quite like. It sounds cool. Um, and then we roll into Chapter 20, which is it's very fast-paced. Um, Harry is, like, shouting out to Murphy that he, he needs to get you know, to get clear while he deals with this. And and I like how he's like, I don't want to say plant monster because it doesn't sound cool enough. So he's just like, I need to deal with this chlorophyne. And all the while he's got like his shield up and this thing's just swinging them around, chucking them about, giving them a slap. Um, yeah, yeah. As everything seems to do at this point. And he kind of, this creature gets cut on like steel, which allows Harry to identify that it's from fairy origin. And he, he fucking pegs it down for like this aisle and full of like shelves of like steel and iron and everything you can imagine that would be effective in this fight. And he, he just kind of waits for it to like follow him. And it, as it begins to follow him, he uses whichever spell it is like to create a windstorm, which causes all the shelves just full of this shit just to fall on top of it. Thank you. That's the one. And everything just falls down on top of the chlorophyne, and it's just screaming out in pain. And I mean, it doesn't kill it, but it, it slows it down. It means that they have enough time, hopefully, to get away. Um, mm. In any case, Harry and Murph reunite at this point, and again, they're still kind of figuring how to get out of this place because it's either go through one door and face Grum, who is immune to magic, or go through a different door and potentially get shot by some lunatic with a rifle. And at this point, Harry takes off, and Murph's just like, where are you going? And he's like, don't worry, I have a plan. And that is where we end these chapters. Whew! Yeah. Um, this is one of the, the sections that I've been getting really excited for, because this is... Same. Uh, it's an area that I, I really remember quite vividly reading. Um, yeah. Uh, the chlorophyne is very cool um, as a lover of like swamp thing and similar um, it just makes me think of that um, in fact there's a magic card um, Magic the Gathering card called Phyto Titan um, that looks exactly how I picture the chlorophyne if, if anyone wants to have a look um, cool so uh, yeah quite a lot to cover there um it's some nice kind of connecting tissue um the first half and the talk with murphy and then and then we have like a nice action set piece to kind of pull it all together um i think for me um i the the bit that i really like i love seeing the contrasts between summer and winter um I, I really love seeing how how different they are and then how similar because um, you've got this whole thing of like, oh, winter is underground in this cold, dank ballroom and summer is on top of a skyscraper in this beautiful open-air tropical garden. Um, 
and and they couldn't be more different. But both of them are trying to manipulate Harry. Both yeah. of them are trying to uh, change his thoughts on the investigation. I mean, it's the old like carrot and stick. Winter is very much the stick, but some are just do it with carrots. And that that whole moment where Harry's kind of sadness is is taken away from him um, is very much uh, another form of glamour. Similar to what what is hit uh, the kind of like horny primal glamour that winter use um, this summer like honeyed glamour is is just as um, beguiling and uh, it's it's just as kind of insidious really when you get down to it. Um, I always find the summer court really interesting because they're kind of that. They're just as nasty as winter, but they're nasty in, in such a, a weird, nice, saccharine kind of way. They're, they're more passive aggressive. Like, yeah. Like, if you, if I, I, I know, if you were living with a member of the summer court and winter court at university and you, like, used one of their plates, winter would smash it across your head and tell you never to do it again. Whereas yeah. winter would just wash the plate for you, but, like, wash it in bleach and then not rinse it off. Yeah. So the next um, time you go or, to the plate, you're just a bit ill. Even, even better, I feel like someone would go out and buy a single plate and leave it out for you, saying, obviously, you don't have one. Yeah. Or something <laughs> like that. It, yeah, they are... It's it's very very interesting, and and the more we see them, the more the more interesting it becomes. Because it's very easy to mistake summer and winter as good and evil, and uh, it's very far from that. And I think Jim does a really good job of depicting that uh, contrast um, between them. Agree. Uh, what did you think? I, just a, just a quick like, just throwing it out there. What do you yeah. think of the centaur? I, I mean, it's weird because I, I remember the whole exchange with Summer and everything past that point, but I didn't remember the centaur, and I'm not sure if that's because, I mean, he, he's got to pop up again, yeah, like surely. <laughs> I, I feel like it's just one of those things that gets thrown out occasionally, like oh yeah, there's some centaurs there and there's some satyrs knocking about. Because it it feels like, compared to winter. <laughs> like the summer courts feel more traditional kind of um exotic fairy creatures i guess yeah and i don't know cuz and correct i'm feel free to correct me if i'm wrong here but we don't we get a lot more exposure to winter than we do summer in these books and i, I would say so definitely i i still feel that this is to my knowledge, maybe the only book where summer is really, really present. I we certainly haven't seen many of summer's like strongholds, um, or like their their home turf. We tend to see people from summer from the view of winter, or. Uh, what have you? But yeah, I think this is the only time that we really go to summer's territory. Yeah, thought I can remember um, at least. 
yeah, that it is interesting. Um, I, I I do feel like like the centaur just opens up more questions than it answers. Like, how does he get around? <laughs> uh, does that does the centaur go into the city? Do people still perceive him as a centaur? I mean, I I assume it's similar to um, like Grum and that lot where. They've got some weird little human enchantment enchantment thing that will kind of disguise them. But I'm just I'm just being to say that I I imagined that the centaur would be played by um Dave Batista. Just saying. I can totally see that. <laughs> um, I I I also do kind of see a Jason Momoa centaur. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Um, just because that man can do one hell of a good topless shot, uh, let's be let's be honest. Yeah, um, argue there, I suppose. Um, yeah, uh, centaur is is interesting. Um, I, I, yeah, I just imagine someone being in a lift and like being hit by glamour or whatever to not stand behind this guy. So it's just like. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, is it that they somehow perceive the guy as like being really fat, but only like behind? Oh, I feel we need to have this addressed by Jim Butcher. I I think so. I think this is one that only Jim can answer. But yeah, he he's just got the biggest ass that you've ever seen. <laughs> um. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, along with Summer Court, uh, obviously we have Elaine's beating, uh, that she's been attacked, um, that kind of mystery thread, and we don't really get much clarification on it. Um, any Anything that you really want to pull out there? Um, not really. I mean, I struggled pulling things out of this, because I feel it's more... Like it's it's more set up, similar to what we had with Winter earlier in the book. But um, you know, thinking about it now, I'm like, and I I honestly can't remember who, like, beat the shit out of her. But I'm just gonna throw in my hat and say it's Lloyd Slate because, out of everyone we've come across so far, <laughs> he is definitely the shadiest motherfucker on like the entire series at this point. There there is certainly. And I, I do feel that this kind of happens for the next couple of books as well. Whenever anything just ridiculously vicious and fucked up happens, it tends to be Lloyd Slate <laughs> for a while. Because <laughs> um, he's just a bit of a mad dog. Um, which, you know, is necessary, I suppose. Yeah. Um for for summer and their doings, um, yeah, there, there isn't much to really to really pick out uh, about that. Um, it's yeah, I'm interested to see see where that goes. I can't remember how that mystery resolves. I again, I I feel like it's probably Lloyd Slate, um, just from the people that are that are kind of in the in the mix at the moment, um. Yeah. I I really enjoyed the conversation around Harry not being cold enough for winter. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed that as well. 
I think that that's that's one of the things on a second read through of the series, um, you see a lot more about what what Jim is getting at in that section, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the way that the the Lenonshi teaches mentors. Um, is very much through inciting action in her students instead of giving lectures or whatever. Um, so you can see how she has actually influenced him. Um, it's yeah. very interesting. It, especially um, what you know about Lianne further down the line as well. It's like full yeah. well she definitely did influence, manipulate in her weird way of teaching. But yeah. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. Um so uh, moving into to chapters uh nineteen uh, eighteen and nineteen, um we get we get a really good Harry and Murphy check in here. Um and I feel like this defines their relationship for the next couple of books very well. Um, it makes me think of early on in Full Moon. There's a scene where they're in the car together, yeah, and they have a, they have a catch up kind of where where they're at with each other. Um, it reminds me a little bit of that, and it shows why Murphy is so important in Harry's life. And I think that that's that's really interesting. That she is this kind of foundation of trust that he he knows that no matter what else is going on in the world, he can at least trust one person and that's Murphy. Um, and that shows the power of their relationship straight out. Agreed. It's kind um, of what we've been waiting for as well since um, the first book. So I, I think we mentioned in the first book, in the second book, their relationship was very kind of like, Oh yeah, like you'll let me know if something happens, and then Harry doesn't, and then they have that whole classic. Oh, I just don't think I can trust you anymore, man. And then, yeah. you know, disaster pushes them back together, with the exception of grave peril, obviously, where things are a bit rickety anyway. Um, but yeah, like you say, I, this definitely is a defining moment, which kind of sets us on course for the next forever. There's there's something really nice here as well about like they're both stepping a little bit closer, a, a bit out of their own worlds and a bit closer into a shared world. As in, Dresden is giving more information on the White Council, and um, he's happy to reveal his to show his full magic in front of her, interesting yeah. uh, that there's nothing untoward about Murphy kind of thing, and on Murphy's side. She is happy to agree to work with Dresden outside of the police force, which is massive for her. She is, uh, I mean, she bleeds blue. Um, it's absolutely a a diehard police officer from a police officer family. Um, and she uh, is, uh, she's willing to give that away to work with Dresden because she knows that, Ultimately, what they're accomplishing is for the good and lawful of the world. 
Yep. Um, so I, it's great to see them kind of coming together here, and they're both giving something. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great character study scene. It's really nice. Um, cool. Uh, so yeah, we've talked kind of about the action stuff. Um, not much to say uh, on that. Uh, no, like I, I mean, to be fair, that point I wrote in thinking that it would be resolved in this in these chapters, but I think it's the yeah. next chapter where like the whole Walmart fight is resolved. So, yeah, it's a, it, this is kind of going back to the, like Jim's thing about setting up mouse traps for his characters. This is very much just a the the setup of the mouse trap, I guess. Yeah, um, and. It's. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, the ten, the tension builds very nicely. That it's like there's this one thing, and then there's a troll, and then there's a chlorophene, and then there's a sniper, and then there's fog, and and it's like, oh my god, how are they going to get out of this one? Um, which is, of course, that's how Jim loves to build these kind of set pieces. Um, so I think. It, it's a very good example of a Jim Butcher set piece at the moment, um, and that's that's pretty much what I would what I would say here about that yeah. one. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it really it's just um, waiting for, waiting on the next chapter. I think the chlorophene's a nice um, needed something menacing from the side of summer. Um, that was going to be kind of fun to fight. I think the chlorophene is a really good monster choice from Jim here. Agreed. Um, it's, I, I think later um, in later books, he starts to pull out more kind of classic fairy tale creatures, which have their own kind of gravitas to them because it's like, Oh, okay. Like I, I, I know the story of, uh, the Billy Goat's Gruff, for instance, is something that gets brought into the Dresden Files later on. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, I, I know the story of the Billy Goat's Gruff, so they've already got some gravitas stepping into the series. There isn't really a, a chlorophene in pop culture. Uh, I guess like Swamp Thing or something like that is, is the mm. closest. Um, but uh, it's a very cool, interesting fight. Um, there's There's just something really like beautiful about fighting a plant monster somewhere in like a DIY store where there's like shears and plant cutting equipment and stuff on hand uh, and and that's kind of where the resolution of this heads as well um, which is, is just incredible. It's like okay, vampires, you stake them. Werewolves, silver bullet. Chlorophene, get out the weed whacker. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else that you wanted to pull out in these chapters, Rob? No, not really. I mean, like like I say, it was quite difficult to pull as much as we did last week from these. Yeah, no worries. Um, in which case, I think we're getting. I think it's time to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I'm good with that. We'll take us out. Yeah, as play us out. Always... <laughs> As always, thank you for all of the support. Um, I think we've just crossed over 4,000 downloads. Um, 
yeah, as always, you know, follow us on the social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, which I should update more frequently than I do. Um, and, you know, all the usual stuff. Share, like, subscribe. Share with your friends, your parents. Review. On the street, yeah. spread, spread the word of Jim. That, that whole chestnut. And, uh... <laughs> Next week, we'll be covering chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24 of Summer Night. Summer Night! Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you've been listening to the Paranet Podcast with your hosts, me, Rob Davis, and... Me, Patrick Lund. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.